This episode of Continuing Mission is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Continuing Mission, our look at the ways in which fans are keeping Star Trek alive. I'm your host, Christopher Jones, and the primary focus of this show is on the fan series, or as I prefer to call them, independent productions, that tell new stories set in the Star Trek universe. We know a great deal about the 23rd and 24th centuries, but our exploration of the 22nd was unfortunately cut short. The cancellation of Enterprise not only left behind a number of loose threads from the series, but also key moments in Star Trek history that a prequel really should have explored. Almost 10 years after Enterprise left television, the feature-length film Star Trek Horizon aims to close one of those gaps by telling the story of the famous Earth-Romulan War. Made by fans in love with Star Trek and set during the Enterprise time period, Horizon centers on the Coalition of Planets, a young alliance of worlds led by Earth that is at war with the Romulan Empire. Desperate for a chance to gain the upper hand, the Coalition forms an alliance with Tamar, a Romulan deserter, in the hopes that she can provide valuable intelligence on her former masters. Now, it sounds very interesting, and to learn more about this story and how the film is being put together, I'm joined today by writer director and executive producer Tommy Kraft and actor Mark Bowers, who plays Commander Jackson Gates, first officer of the NX-04 Discovery. Hello, Tommy and Mark. Thanks so much for joining me today on Continuing Mission to talk about Horizon. I, I didn't know much about this project before I started talking to you guys, and I'm really excited about it because I am a big Enterprise fan. Well, hey, no problem. Uh, big Enterprise fan here, too, so it's really nice to get a chance to talk to you. And Mark, how about you? Were you an Enterprise fan also before you signed on to this project? Well, uh, I admittedly am not a huge... Not that I'm not a fan. Uh, I guess I never gave it enough of a chance to become a fan of. Um, I knew of the series, and of course, who doesn't know about Star Trek? Um, but I think... Uh, in looking into more of it since I signed on to do this, um, I definitely have the potential to become a huge fan of, of this series. So, Excellent. Well, before we, we get into the whole discussion here, t- tell me a little bit about your creative backgrounds and, of course, what brought you in here. So, Tommy, I, you're the, the writer and executive producer of Horizon, yeah, and director and costumer and CGI guy and composer. And maybe composer as well. Am I right oh, yeah. about that? Yeah, there's that one too. <laughs> um, let's see. There's um, You mentioned writer, right, I think? There's that one. I think so, yeah. yeah. I'm sure there's some other ones. Uh, you know, I've gone through this every time I've made a movie because I usually do so much of it myself, and I always hate crediting myself at the end of the movie um, because it just looks so 
you know, narcissistic to have this like huge long thing with Tommy Craft. Mm-hmm. So I usually just go a film by Tommy Craft and then I don't have to worry about okay. it. Okay. You're not doing like a Tommy Craft joint? <laughs> no, not <laughs> not usually. Well, how about you, Mark? Um, well, I have lightly dabbled in writing and lightly more so even dabbled in directing and never composed anything. Um, I guess I prefer to just stick to the acting and, and do some voiceover um, uh, things here in Michigan. Um, and uh, that's uh, sort of the, creant, the the extent of my uh, creative endeavors in film and uh, in the recorded media. Excellent. What kind of voiceovers do you do? Um, all different types, actually. I, I've done... Uh, few commercials i've done a few um industrial uh, voiceovers where uh there needs to be sort of a voice uh narrating i guess uh, in the background without um without me being on camera per se um mm-hmm. and i've done uh i did an audio book uh and i've done uh, i played a character uh, in a children's book oh very cool well, let's talk about the the actual Horizon Project a little bit and what was the genesis of this because, as I told you guys um, well at the beginning here and also as we were talking before the show, I'm a big fan of Enterprise, which seems to be sort of, I don't know, maybe it makes me an outlier a little bit amongst the Star Trek fan base, although I think that's coming around a little bit in recent years. There seems to be a growing interest in Enterprise, but it's definitely the most polarizing chapter in the Star Trek saga. And fans seem to either love it or they hate it. Or with the majority of fans, they just never give it a fair chance. It's just there and maybe they watched the first few episodes and then they kind of tuned out. So, so Tommy, why did you decide to pick Enterprise specifically as the time period for the setting of this film? Well, I've always been a big Trekkie and sci-fi fan in general, and I kind of fell out of Star Trek up until about a year and a half, two years ago. It's not to say I wasn't interested, but I wasn't watching it all the time. And then I hit a really rough patch, um, personally, and when I was watching, I decided to go back and rewatch Enterprise, because when you go through something like depression, it's, you know oftentimes you lose energy to do absolutely anything. And so mm-hmm. I got into one of those phases where I was just watching a lot of TV shows um, in between still trying to finish up my college degree, degree and everything like that. Um, and so I started rewatching Enterprise. And the story of the show and the way Captain Archer was portrayed by Scott Bakula and the sort of explorer's heart um, in the show really kind of, I latched onto that this time. And I realized, and of course, only being 22, the last time I watched it, I was, you know, a young teen. And there were a lot of things that I was able to pick up on this time around that I didn't back when it was more about cool space fights and everything. And right. so this story, um, this evolving story of Enterprise and the first crew really spoke to me and the changes and events going on in my life at the time. 
and it gave me a passion for this show that I didn't have with the other Star Treks, which I certainly loved, but not necessarily enough to devote, you know, a couple of years of my life to doing full time a movie based on it and to do it professionally. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's this, it's really, you know, it's the kind of project that I want to be a really great professional project, but it has a lot of personal meaning to it there as well. Yeah, I find the character interactions in, in Enterprise to be, and like you, as I get older and, and I pay a little more attention to those character interactions, compared to most of Star Trek outside of Deep Space Nine, of course, I think Enterprise did a really nice job with the character interactions. Of course, they didn't give all their characters enough to right. do all the time, but but when they did, uh, it was it was quite nice. There was a certain humanity there to that show, you know, that you didn't necessarily get or were able to relate to um, mm-hmm. in the other shows. And that's certainly there, I mean, with the original series and TNG and DS9. I, and I do like Voyager, too. I'm just going to throw that out there. Some people uh, will get on you for that. But um, mm-hmm. there's, it's, you know, it goes back to the Explorer's Heart thing that it's like, the way these people were portrayed as the first ones out there, they did such a good job, both from a writing perspective and an acting perspective, um, making those interactions come to life. And, you know, they could have focused more on Hoshi and Travis. Uh, They probably would have as the show if they'd gotten more time. But, you know, that's part of the problem, too, of getting cut so short. Definitely. So, Mark, when you saw the script for this, how did you come to be involved in the project? I mean, do you, did you know Tommy prior to this? Did you see a script and, and you saw maybe some of the character interactions that we're talking about that attracted you to it? Um, well, I had uh, worked with Tommy on many a few short films, actually, for about a year and a half uh, prior to this coming along. Um, and I had Tommy work with me on a uh, um, sort of a webisode a uh, little project that I did, which is what I referred mm-hmm. to earlier when I said that I uh, had dabbled very lightly in directing and, and writing. Um, and actually, Tommy approached me. Uh, he texted me, uh, I think, a, was it what, a November or an October evening, and a text came through, and he asked if I would be interested uh, in being part of his Star Trek film and if I would uh, be willing to play the first officer. And... Um, I said yes because I knew it was going to be good. You know, I knew that, you know, it would be nothing less than stellar if it came from Tommy Kraft. So, um, and then once I uh, read the script and got together with Tommy and uh, other uh, potential cast members at that point and went through the script, I uh, I knew that it was going to be great and that I had to had to have a the part that he wanted me to have. So it really was a no brainer. And I, you know, <laughs> I can never, I can never say that I don't trust Tommy's instinct. Um, I definitely do. And um, while in the beginning I thought, oh, I don't know if I really see myself in this character, I've come to realize that uh, that he knows exactly what he's doing, and I see more of myself in this character than I will ever admit to him. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. If you lived in the 22nd century, do you think you would be an explorer? Would you go out there on a ship like this and explore? I would. Was that for Mark or was that for me? I know I would do it. I, heck, yeah. 
I look up at the stars every night and I wish I could go out there. That's like one of my biggest dreams. What about you, Mark? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've always been fascinated by um, just by things that are beyond what we can see even. Um, and just you know, the fact that the stars are so minute to us, but uh, mm-hmm. even within each star there is, you know, there's this uh, great vast unknown, you know. So it's it's always fascinated me for sure. You just hope you won't be in the middle of a war while you're doing that <laughs> exploration yeah. of other star systems, right? Absolutely, right? <laughs> It'd be my luck. I'd get out there and I'd find myself like the first, I'd probably be the one to like accidentally start the war or something. You know, I'd fly my ship <laughs> over the wrong planet and they'd get, and they'd attach a mine, you know, to the hull of my ship and try to blow me up. And then I'd have to go out there and of course defuse the mine. And then I'd get stuck in the leg with, uh, <laughs> You know, with the mine thing, and then... Sounds like your your name might actually be Reed. Uh, well, that's classified <laughs> section 31, so... All right. If you don't know, Mark, that's... that. Um, I was quoting, the, like, the plot of one of the Enterprise episodes, so you're not so you're not totally lost. Okay, no, I... Well, it um, doesn't take much, but that, that definitely did it. <laughs> so it's, thank you for, for clarifying. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. Let me ask you, Tommy, one more thing about Enterprise while we're talking about why you chose this time period. And we talked a lot about the humanity here. And one thing that I love about the series is that it does feel closer to us. Uh, I love the NX-01 because it feels like a ship that we would actually build. Oh, yeah. The design aesthetic and all of it is like something we would build as opposed to the ships of the 24th century, which really are still very futuristic and and like little cities in space yeah. you know, to us now. Uh, at the same time, I, I think that Enterprise, somewhat because of studio wishes, maybe more so than what Brandon and Rick wanted to do with the story, uh, moved quickly back into the familiar yeah. Star Trek territory and moved a little bit more away from what we could relate to. What did you think about that yourself and, and how they balanced that? Well, I think um, it's really interesting when I've heard them talk about how they originally wanted to set the show on Earth, and the mm-hmm. first season would be completely following the construction of the Enterprise. That would have been a really cool take, too, and I would have actually loved to see that. That's not to say that um, I I would rather that instead of what they did do, but I think that the way what they had to deal with with the studios and with having to keep that familiarity they did a very good job of making the crew to be they they did a good job of making the crew out to be newbies essentially at mm-hmm. this whole space exploration thing i i was listening to your podcast about uh, dead stop and oh, yeah. you were talking about how Archer would just go up to aliens and introduce himself and he's like, hey, this is where we're from, you know. Here's and, a picture of Earth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here's how you get there. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, at the time, Earth didn't have, you know, a squat for any defenses or anything either right. that we know of. And so I think this – and then, of course, you have the episode where they lost the communicator um, mm-hmm. on that planet. 
And it's stuff like that that they were able to bring that new sense of first-time explorers and doing this, the first ones out there, to this old idea of, you know, story of the week, exploring space kind of thing. It's, it's actually, especially season three, was a lot more of what I had hoped that oh, Voyager really? could okay. have been. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know, this whole idea, because the Expanse was like, wow, that's really cool. There's so much weird stuff out here and, and creepy people. And and Voyager, I thought, felt more like the next generation in the Delta Quadrant. And Yeah, it did. It did, which was probably not the original premise. Right. They fell back into that yeah. Yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, I mentioned the NX-01 a moment ago, and I love that ship. And the ship in your film, Horizon is the NX-04 mm-hmm. Discovery. And in in naming the NX-04 Discovery, you're following the pattern that Michael A. Martin established in the novel Beneath the Raptor's Wing, where we actually see the NX-04 right. for the first time. Um, and it follows the pattern that was established there also of being named after the same sequence as space shuttles from yeah. NASA's space shuttle program. Of course, your crew is different than the crew that was in Martin's novel. Did you take much inspiration from the Romulan War novel series that Martin wrote in preparing this story? Uh, not really, actually, because the main reason I wanted to do the movie was to close out storylines the Enterprise didn't get a chance to. It, mm-hmm. I felt like it was kind of my contribution to the show that meant a lot to me. And I didn't think I could do that the way I wanted to if I was taking too much inspiration from the books because, I mean, eventually, I, I actually haven't read the books, but I think he does eventually close out the you know the whole Future Guy storyline too, uh, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And I guess the way I saw it was I have these ideas and, and I really wanted to do it my own way. Maybe that sounds narcissistic. I don't know. No. But uh, also, you know, it's just... It didn't interest me that much to do an adaptation. I wanted to tell a unique story uh, in this time period. Yeah, definitely. And the the novels are, of course, as fans love to say, the novels are not canon. Right. And well, that's and, why I felt good about doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, if if it's not on screen, it's open for interpretation. And we've yeah. seen that throughout novels. Uh, I mean, even... Different novels will give different explanations right. for for you know tying up threads that we saw on the screen, and and certainly uh, films like yours can do that as well. Now that the premise, of course, the the right on the top of your website, it says a war with the Romulans, desperate to gain the upper hand. So so the story thread that you're closing out is the Romulan War, which is of course why I was talking about beneath the Raptors right. wing there. And um, I'd, I'd like to talk about this from two angles. And I, 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 I have a good feeling, Tommy, of maybe why you chose this, because as Star Trek fans, it's like this is what we've, we really wanted to see play out in Enterprise, I think especially if we yeah. got to a sixth or seventh season. Mark, how about you? Did, did you grow up with the original series? Do you know the whole backstory of the, the famous Romulan Earth War that so many fans wanted to see on Enterprise? Um, I am <laughs> familiar with the uh, 
the original series and with the next generation uh, casually I'll, I'll say um, mm -hmm. my uh, my girlfriend is a trekkie uh, through and through uh, but she's more an original series trekkie uh, mm -hmm. somewhat next generation but uh, because of her uh, her um, um, I guess being enamored with and everything William Shatner <laughs> uh, she has uh, helped guide me through the original series and and uh, some of his uh, his um, pursuits beyond Star Trek. Um, mm -hmm. So um, I, I guess as an outsider looking in, I I I know there is a Romulan War, and I know there is you know I know of, of some factoids here and there. Um, but um, I didn't know how, I guess, deeply important the Romulan War was or is to the canon, mm -hmm. and really mm -hmm. what its implications are for for the series as a whole. So mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, though. You find things like this a lot with with casting. Um, with Benedict Cumberbatch, for instance, I think said he didn't even know what a Klingon was before he got the script for Into Darkness. And maybe, although I've seen him in interviews when they were asking him about Klein, and he's really good at pretending like he doesn't know. <laughs> That's true. He could he could have been about. playing it up. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you hear it a lot with these kind of movies where they have this huge fandom behind them and this huge history, especially like with the comic book movies. And you get an actor involved, and you know the big fans are interviewing the actors. You know how how did this comic book and how did this character and his backstory inspire you? And it, sometimes it's kind of disappointing. It's a double edged sword, and they say, I, you know, I don't, I don't, but I don't really know. But in some ways, I think that's a good thing too, because they can then bring their own sensibilities to these characters. Right. You know, they can. Uh, it's not I don't I don't think I wouldn't say bogged down, but it's still they can bring an originality to it and yet still go back and learn the what what is behind this that the mm -hmm. fans are so interested about. I think that's one thing about Enterprise and when I talk to people who are diehard Enterprise fans, I often find that they aren't necessarily Star Trek fans. They're fans of Enterprise. Right. And Often they've never seen any other Star Trek. They they like the cast. And I think the story, as we talked about earlier, is a bit more relatable because you can watch it as a show set in space, but but because overall the tech, you know, they don't have the techno babble of the later yeah. time period and such. And so you can kind of watch it more as a regular TV show. And so Mark, given your background there, one thing I was wondering was being aware of the Romulan War existence but not knowing its its place within the canon and how important it is there what did you think about the story and the script from from that perspective just viewing it as as an actor and as a creative coming in and wanting to tell a good story well i really i i guess i i like the the brilliance of really setting this story um against that backdrop um, mm -hmm. I think it's the re the relatability of it uh, to to really to the whole canon as we've talked about already. Um, I think Will 
resonate with uh, people who have followed Star Trek from the first series uh, and for people who are just coming in and only viewing this movie um, as a freestanding um, creation. You know, mm-hmm. so um, I think I just the themes are so universal. Uh, whether you're 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 following the whole of Star Trek or whether you're just taking this uh, from it, that um, I think everybody can find something to relate to in this. So, and it just occurred to me, Mark, also that I don't think this is I don't think that we've actually told anyone yet. What role you're playing in the film? Oh. <laughs> He's the Invisible Man. <laughs> I, I didn't ask you that up front. Yeah, bad on me. <laughs> um, I don't even know what role yet. To be honest, I just got the script the other day. No, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, I play uh, First Officer slash Science Officer Jackson Gates in this film. Excellent. So, uh, so Tommy, let me let's pick up the, the script angle here and. Now that we've heard from Mark, you know, kind of approaching it without the the deep canon and Star Trek lore there. Now, you personally writing it, you, you decided, uh, you said up front that you wanted to tie up some of the loose threads throughout Enterprise. And there are a number of them, but of course, the Romulan War is probably, I think, the biggest one that everyone wanted to see. So you decided to write this story. How did you approach it from kind of that deep fandom in universe perspective? Well, you know, it kind of goes back to the, what I said earlier about I hadn't been as deep into Star Trek as I am now. I mean, I'd always been a big fan, but doing this is when I really started to get deep into it. So mm-hmm. when I first started this project, even I didn't realize how important the Romulan War was. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you know, I knew that they were going this direction with the show, and... I knew that there was still this unresolved question of the future guy, which I wanted to tackle as well, which mm-hmm. is uh, part of the film. And once I kind of settled on some storylines and ideas of what I wanted to do, I decided to start researching the Romulan War more. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like a <laughs> this is a huge part of canon. I can't believe I didn't mm-hmm. know this. And so, oh, I, of course, okay. I went back and I was watching... You know, some of the rewatching some of the original series episodes. So I did actually do my research for anybody who out there who's worried. Um, and it's a good thing too because some of the ideas I had to go back and rework when I was first writing the story and the script and to make sure it fit the canon. But you know, because because my first um, notion, as we talked about, was to write an Enterprise story. That's where I started from, and then I had to work all this huge canon into it. And luckily, as what I'm told is good writing practice, I was outlining before doing the script, so it wasn't a huge deal to go back and and rework all that. So for anybody out there who's worried, it does you know it's uh, the the war is definitely the focus, and it's. But like Mark said, it's not something where you have to know the history. That was very important to me as well. Mm, right. Yeah, the it, that that was a fine line for Enterprise 
to walk as a series as well. So, Mark, the episode that Tommy was quoting earlier about having to go out and fix the mine is the episode Minefield, where we we do encounter Romulans in the first season of Enterprise, but according to canon, and when you get to the original series episode Balance of Terror, where Kirk has sort of, you know, the submarine episode with Mark Leonard as the Romulan commander, no one had seen Romulans before and didn't know that they were an offshoot of the Vulcans. So how does Enterprise handle that? And it was that we never actually got to see the Vulcans. And we actually talked about this on the network some years ago. And I think we called the episode of protecting that view screen moment because <laughs> you had to make sure that you didn't violate canon. So, so I guess you had to do a lot of research there, Tommy, right? To yeah, that was the biggest fit. rule that uh, I didn't realize I couldn't break when <laughs> when I was doing the outline and Mm -hmm. the number one question I've gotten so far is because one of the characters, main characters in the movie is a Romulan defector and everybody asks me, well, how can you have a Romulan defector if nobody's seen a Romulan before? And that's the first thing I thought of. And I was like, Oh shoot, what am I going to do? And then I thought, you know, the, the answer I came up with really fit the character well and what she and everybody else is going through is that she was part of this Tal Shiar program to mm-hmm. receive modifications, genetic modifications to essentially become human and infiltrate Starfleet. And the great thing about that is it just makes her so much more untrustworthy because right. not only, you know, is, is she Romulan, but how do you even know she's a Romulan other than what people are saying? Or, you know, maybe this is all part of her plan. And that answer not only fits the canon issue so well, but it fit so well with the story that I wanted to tell of the issues that she's going through of trying to assimilate into this situation, as well as the issues that other people are going through of do we trust this this person or not? And it makes you wonder if maybe that boss you have at work who's kind of a taskmaster and <laughs> and untrustworthy might might be a Romulan as that's well. true he's you know <laughs> funny story about the boss at work this is almost related I always thought a great little tidbit in fact something I if you know if I'd lost my mind I would have put this as the closing like after credits scene like in a Marvel movie the uh, like the main Romulan villain finds himself back on earth like, you know, 2000s BC and finds himself completely lost, but he still has his technology. So what does he do? He builds an empire on Earth and tries to rule it and calls it the Roman Empire. I always thought mm-hmm. that would just be a little neat tidbit, but, you know, yeah, that's it's hard to do that kind of thing without really jumping the shark. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, let's talk about the casting a little bit. So, Mark, like you said, you're playing the first officer, Jackson Gates. And, uh, Tommy, how did you cast everyone in the film here? Uh, how did you choose the uh, roles? How did you choose the actors? And who else is going to be in the film? Well, part of it was a casting call. And part of it was pre-casting. Um, the captain... I had actually met on the webisode that Mark talked about, that Mark wrote and directed, and I was working on with him. And Paul, Paul Lang, who's playing the captain, came in and did that, and I thought, wow, this guy is really good. And that was a comedy, too. 
Um, but it was the kind of thing where I saw it and I was like, man, I bet this guy would make a great Starfleet captain. And mm-hmm. ever since that, I always kept it in the back of my mind. And this was a little while before I thought of doing this fan film. And then when I started writing the character, I thought, you know, I'm this guy would be perfect for this role. And so I kind of pictured him. And luckily, he was he did, he said yes right away. He was very interested in doing the role. But some of the others uh, I got from a casting call. It happened very luckily. My chief engineer, who wound up not being available to do this interview tonight, he's a huge Trekkie, too. I had posted the casting call, and he saw it while posting the casting call for a movie he was directing. And it turns out that he had made his own fan films uh, like 10 years ago. And so I talked to him, and we, of course, we hit it off right away, you know, best of friends with all this Star Trek lingo. And he did an audition, and it was really good. So that was almost, you know, that was quite fortuitous of a find. And some of the others, like Janine, who's playing, Janine Thompson, who's playing the helm officer, I had known her from some previous work, and I thought of her for the role and and asked her if she would do it. Same, actually, for the villain, um, Rocco Gerlanda. Because the great thing about doing so many projects before this is I've gotten to know a lot of great people and a lot of good talent. And I was able to picture those people in these roles when I was writing it. So I kind of knew who I was writing for and and what to give them. Mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. of these main roles. Mark, you worked with Paul before because you said that's how you guys met on the the short that you did. Had you worked with any of the other actors before or and how are you meshing with them? Um I had worked with some and also uh, come to know some through the auditioning process. You know, a lot of the same actors uh, show up to auditions over and over again, especially in mm-hmm. a in a small acting community uh like Michigan here. Um mm. and um was going to work with Paul on a uh movie about a year prior to having him work on my webisode, uh which um that movie unfortunately fell through. But uh I saw his talent then and I thought, you know, wow, he's you know He's amazing. And if I ever get the chance to work with him, I definitely want to. Coincidentally, he, he auditioned for my webisode. Uh, and once he came in, it was like, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm done looking. I found the person I want for, <laughs> for, mm-hmm. the, for that role. Um, Janine, I had known of her and I think had run into her in... Um, in an audition or two, um, but really didn't come to know more about her until she auditioned for my webisode as well. Uh, and uh, once again with her, it was just like, okay, I'm done looking because I found mm. I found the act the actress for that role. Um, mm. So so it's just sort of kind of you know you know of people you see them here and there and uh, some you're fortunate to work with and others not at that time but maybe at a later time. So. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it looks like you guys have a really great cast put together, and um, and and it's interesting how in this the footage that I've seen and in the photos that I've seen and all, everyone looks so at home in those uniforms, and it th- they feel like actual Starfleet officers from the twenty second century. Maybe that's you know it being closer to our time and something we can associate more with, but. 
but it all really meshes so well. Janine actually reminds me a little bit of of Captain Hernandez. She does, actually. Now, you know, I hadn't mm-hmm. thought of that, but now that you mention it, she kind of does. With those uniforms, how are you guys making those? Because they really look fantastic. Uh, thank you. That's, um, I taught myself how to sew, and I've been doing them all myself. Uh, well, Tommy, you, you, you can do everything. <laughs> it's really amazing. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I, I couldn't do that before this movie, I will tell you. And, okay. um, because the first thing I thought of is what am I going to do for, cause this is undoubtedly, I think the hardest era to costume in terms of Starfleet uniforms. Mm-hmm. They're the most complex yeah. uniforms they've had. And well, even on the shows, they had trouble. Like, you know, you get, you get different color shades yeah. on camera even. So. Yeah. Cause that, um, I think one of the ways that happens is once you wash the uniforms enough, mm-hmm. the colors start to bleed and fade. They have 13 zippers in them, for crying out loud. And all these different... Some of the pockets have two flipping zippers. You know? And it's like... And I, when I was looking how to source these uniforms early on, I couldn't find anyone that did them well. One of the mm. biggest things I found were the division stripes on the shoulders. the You know, the red or blue or teal or mm-hmm. command gold. Um a lot of times those would just be like these huge pieces of fabric that were like wrapped around the shoulder or mm-hmm. they just were poorly constructed. And then you'd often find that, you know, the pockets weren't done right or the the belts that go to the back weren't done right. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to really be putting this much time and effort and energy into this project, I might as well do it the right way. And I didn't really know of any tailors. I mean, there's, of course, local tailors, but that probably would have cost me a fortune. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, to get, especially for something that's so, you know, abstract. It's not the kind of thing that they get a request for every day. Right. Um, so, you know, my mom, too, she did help me learn how to sew. And, you know, I just kind of went, you know, took went to town on it. The first two uniforms... I don't have those anymore because they they weren't worth setting eyes upon. But by the time I got around, <laughs> those to the were the third, index in the uniform line, right? Those were yeah. your index oh, one and X oh, right, uniforms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. those are more like the NX negative one, oh, uh, the alpha uniform. and the beta from yeah, first exactly. Floor, right? Okay, yeah. Um, but by the time I got around to the third one, I had to you know kind of kick it into high gear because this was around last October. I originally wanted to start shooting last summer. Um, so this was like last October. So I finally decided right, I just got to start making screen uniforms. Mm-hmm. And the first one I did was Mark's actually. And it came out pretty good for the most part. You know, any little blemishes or anything like that are things that won't show up on camera. Um, and it's, and you know, by now I've made 10 of them. And I can practically do these in my sleep for the most part now. Um, but it is the by far one of the biggest time uh, black holes of time in this project. Yeah. These uniforms, man, they just take forever to make. Well, they're really impressive. And, the, and I mean, I thought they were impressive to start with. And now you're, you're telling me you learned how to sew to make these uniforms. Um, yeah, well, thank you. Very impressive. Mark, has Tommy tried to get all of you guys to learn how to sew and make uniforms in case you have <laughs> a lot of extras have. coming in? <laughs> Absolutely not. I think he would have found himself castless 
had he done that, <laughs> yeah. or at least uh, first officer lifts. I uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that that would be a that would be a huge disaster to get me to try to sew. Any, I sewed a button on once, like maybe ten years ago, for something that I absolutely had to. You know, it was a shirt, whatever, and and I realized at that point um, that's not something I should ever do. So no, <laughs> I'm glad he didn't ask for help on that because I. Buttons are really annoying, too. And there are four buttons on this uniform, too, I will have you know. It's really frustrating. Well, one other creative element that's really important for getting fans to buy in to these independent productions are the visual effects, especially with Enterprise, because with that show being in 2001 to 2005, we were pretty spoiled because by that time they could do fantastic visual effects on television. So I know that has to be a huge challenge for you guys. And I've, I've seen the clips that you have right now of the discovery kind of spiraling towards the planet. And it, it's, it's really incredible. It's right up there with the, the, the effects that I've been seeing with, you know, what Tobias Richter is doing for Alec Peters with Star Trek Axanar. It's, you know, it looks fantastic like that. And I also watched some of the videos. You guys have great videos on your website from early on in production where you're kind of mocking stuff up, you know, and there's like a model of the discovery that, that I guess is just a, it's like a smooth wireframe on there. So you've gone a long way from there to what I'm seeing in the, in these other clips Who's working on... I'm afraid, Tommy, you're going to tell me it's you and just you, but who's working with you on the visual effects and, and how is that process... How has that been going? It, it is mostly me. Um, there's a couple other guys that are doing a couple of the models for me. Mm-hmm. Alex Clem, who also goes by Night Fever. I don't know if any listeners might know him from various forums like Foundation 3D or Sci-Fi Meshes. He put together the Vulcan ship that was in the Kickstarter video for me, um, and he's doing two other Vulcan ships. I, I messaged him because I loved his work, and I asked him if he'd put some models together, and he agreed to. And Ryan McClure, who isn't he doesn't have as much out there, but he's done some stuff. He's doing the Romulan Warbird for me, mm-hmm. thankfully, because you know it just takes forever to model these ships. It's It's yeah. a long time, but... Other, well, and I have Eric Henry, too, who's also working with Alec on Axnar. He's done some concepts for me, and some people may have seen the, as of yet, undisclosed station thingy that I posted a concept of on the Facebook page. He did that. But otherwise, it's been all me so far. I did the interiors and the discovery itself, modeled, textured, rendered, and... For, I think, most of it, for the rest of the movie, it's probably going to be mostly me as well on that, unless wow. some other great people decide to jump on board and, you know, want to uh, contribute. Well, so you are an incredibly talented man, Tommy, well, I have thank to tell you. you. And this this must be your full-time job then, because I, mean, I know from doing this network, Trek FM, I mean, this is pretty much full-time for me. I know how much time just this takes, and the stuff you're doing is... The stuff I do is nothing compared to what you're doing in terms of time involvement. Well, I I suppose I could take this moment now, too, to thank my parents because I started this during my senior year of college. Mm-hmm. And I worked on it pretty much in all my free time then. 
and since since graduating they've been incredibly supportive of me working on this and you know they don't make me pay rent or go get a, a quote-unquote real job or anything and have and that has been really helpful in you know allowing me to spend all days you know all the days all day every day working mm-hmm. on this um that it's you know you're right it it is full time it's literally pretty much i don't know what i would do if i wasn't doing this and that's actually not hyperbole like <laughs> this is mostly what i do well it's what you love and right. and i mean this is the greatest portfolio piece that you can possibly create oh, yeah. so this will pay off you know down the road it's a multi-purpose kind of thing that way you know it's a passion project i love what i'm doing and it also you know it's not only for me but it's the kind of thing that i i hope that the cast and other crew members will get a lot out of too because the star trek fan film is something that hopefully a lot of people are going to see you know, and maybe somebody will see Paul Lang or Mark Bowers and say, hey, I want to work with that guy. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. you know, that's that's part of my motivation, too, for putting so much energy into this is I want it to be a good product for them. Absolutely. And, Mark, an acting question related to the visuals. Science fiction, of course, is, is one of those genres where there's a lot of work that's done in front of green screens for environments. And I know from looking into the creative process for horizon that a lot of this is being shot uh, before green screens had you done much work in that type of environment before what has that been like for you um no it's uh this has really been uh my first experience with green screens on this on this scale um i've done some green screen work uh where it's been maybe a 10 second scene or something like that just to be able to create a small visual effect but um mm-hmm. but this is you know it's walls and floors of of just green and you know mm-hmm. uh maybe you in a chair uh and mm-hmm. uh you definitely have to be able to um act and react to um stimuli that that don't exist when you're you know when you're on set, but mm-hmm. that you know will um, will be put in at a later time. So uh, it's it's challenging, but Tommy's direction uh, definitely makes it so it's not as challenging as it normally would be. So it's been a good experience thus far. I haven't done too much of the green screen yet uh, with Tommy, but there is definitely more to come in the next uh, few weeks of shooting here. So. Yeah, it's interesting because I know, you know, looking into your background that you, you know, did training in theater and you've done things with theater as well. And so there, there you can really react to what is around you, right? And so it's an interesting transition, I guess, going to green screen yeah, it, environment like this. Yeah, yeah. for sure. In, in, in theater, uh, on stage work, uh, even some of the improv work I've done, it, it's all very immediate. You know, you are you are reacting to what is happening as we are speaking at this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. um, so to do it uh, in anticipation of what is going to be filled in later is um, 
it's just a different perspective, and uh, mm-hmm. um, I don't dislike one versus the other. You know, um, when I think about it, it's just, uh, yeah, just different. So I, I, I take it as a challenge, and I welcome it. So it's interesting to note too that uh, oftentimes. A lot of, you know, Mark, his first shoot on the green screen, he didn't even have any of the other cast there. Yet mm-hmm. he had to be reacting to things that they were doing in the scene. And, you know, part of that is because doing this kind of project with such, so far, such a low budget, hopefully the Kickstarter will help with that. But, um, you know, we can't always get people together at the same time. And so that is one of the pros of doing green screen is is the way the bridge, for instance, is spaced out. You can film each person separately at their station. And, you know, we don't necessarily have to have the tactical officer there on the same day that we have, you know, the science officer. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of times where we're shooting and they're talking to people that aren't even there to deliver lines. And, you know, it's – I would – Imagine from an acting standpoint that that would be kind of strange. It's, you know, if if the person is even supposed to be essentially right next to you. And Mm -hmm. it makes it interesting, too, from an editing and directing standpoint, too, of course, having to make sure that all lines up later. But it's, it's definitely a unique challenge. Where are you guys shooting? You know, I, I know the different facilities that, that some of the other independent productions, have set up for their shooting and and I know from your videos that you've done some location shooting you know out in the woods and such as far as your your set like you're talking about you can shoot each tactical station separately what kind of facilities do are you guys using for shooting? Uh, it's very high class it's my basement <laughs> and are you serious yeah uh, totally wow. uh, yeah. I, I have one you know I have a green screen wall and my brother helped me rig up a an overhead lighting thing basically you know mm-hmm. put some uh, metal bars across the ceiling screwed them up there that i could hang lights off of to light mm-hmm. the green screen and so far we've all just been shooting against that one wall in my basement and one wow. of the cool things is that our makeup artist works with a photographer who has a really great studio in detroit and he's also a friend of paul the captain and we're going to be doing a couple of big shoots out there. And mm-hmm. he has a huge green screen area. It's like 20 feet high and comes out 20 feet onto the floor. And it's not a uh, it's not fabric either. It's a hard surface, so you don't have to worry about wrinkles in your screen or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that'll be a really cool place that we're going to be shooting in a couple of weeks as well. Well, that's very interesting. I know anyone listening to this might be hearing, okay, they're shooting in Tommy's basement and there's one wall but go watch the video everyone i mean i i'm i'm very surprised to hear this because i had no no idea at all i am reluctant to admit that because yeah it's you know because i feel i'm also reluctant sometimes to show some behind the scenes clips because i'm afraid people will see that and think oh it's it's this this guy in a basement and yeah and preconceived notion of what that right right Yeah. yeah and you know i don't blame them because there's a lot of bad things that are shot in basements and but you know if if you have dedicated dedication and you are really willing to put in the prep work and know what you're doing and know how to light it you can still do some really great stuff 
One other thing while we're talking about creative that I did want to touch on is the music because the music is critical to any dramatic production. And I listened to the Star Trek Horizon Overture, which is very beautiful. In fact, I'd like to play a little clip of it right now. And of course, Tommy, it says on there, by Tommy Craft. So are, are you composing all of this on the computer? Are you, yeah. are you scoring it and you're having uh, an orchestra record it? How are you putting this together? I'm actually would, a musician, by the way. I played professionally I'll, for seven years, so I'm very well acquainted with the orchestra. And so I was really impressed with what I was hearing. What do you play, by the way? I play bass trombone. Oh, cool. Uh, I'll have to put in a bass trombone solo somewhere in, in, <laughs> in the score. Uh, it's Excellent. it's it's been all computer so far. Um, doing wow. using you know sample sets like East West Quantum Leaps, Symphonic Orchestra, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It would be really mm-hmm. cool to have a live orchestra record mm-hmm. this, of course. But I mean, then you're talking mega mega bucks because you have to pay for the yeah. orchestra and the recording space and recording engineers. And I mean, to do it properly, the way it needs to be done, it's really outside of the scale of even what we're doing with a Kickstarter budget. But, sure, you know, that said, you can do a lot of really, really good stuff with, you know, if, if you put the time in again with the MIDI, and the sample packs, you can do a lot of really high quality stuff. And, you know, I've had a lot of composers actually contact me. I, I don't even know how many. It's, it's been a lot. Mm-hmm. And I even had one, you know, because I thought, well, maybe maybe I should have someone else score it. I don't know. But I had him do, you know, like a, a temp track for a scene. And I... I was, uh, you know, I, my degree is in music, and oh, kind of okay. since starting this project, I was, it's been like one of the parts I've really been looking forward to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm mm-hmm. always a writer director at heart, but I'm also a musician at heart, and mm-hmm. so you know, maybe it seems narcissistic of me. I don't know, but I, I've come to the conclusion that that I'll be the one scoring it for sure, mm-hmm. and. It's, you know, I love writing music. I think it's in a, in a very important part of the process, obviously. Yeah, and I can tell that really comes through uh, when you listen to to the overture here. That's good. Thank you. Well, real quick, before we get off of creative, uh, who else is working with you? You mentioned your makeup artist earlier. Who else mm-hmm. is helping you guys out on the on the production side? 
Uh, that's about it, actually. We have a couple of people that, you know, kind of rotate in for the sound, uh, you know, onset sound boom operator. Um, Joel Worsham is our main guy. He's done the most of it. But we've also had our makeup artist hold the boom on a couple occasions, and we've had some of the actors hold the boom on a couple occasions. And I think that's one of the things people will find quite interesting about this project is just how incredibly small it is, but mm-hmm. how large in scale it's hopefully feeling to the viewer. Um, because, you know, we've had, you know, that's about all we've ever had on set. I've maybe had one or two other people there just to help move stuff or, you know, make sure I don't fall over something when I'm walking backwards with the camera in my hand kind mm-hmm. of deal. So other than that, very small. Interesting. It's very impressive. It really feels like a much, much bigger operation. Well, let's close out with funding. You guys started a Kickstarter campaign with a a very reasonable goal of $10,000, which you blew right past. I see right now as we're recording this, you've got 189 backers and you're up around $13,500. And you've got 22 days to go. Uh, of course, your your goal of $10,000 is extraordinarily modest for yeah, a production like this. So you must have some very serious stretch goals here. If if people listening to this want to contribute and want to help you get this film made, and I certainly hope they do, and I know they will if they go to your website and see what you're doing, uh, tell me a little bit more about the Kickstarter and uh, what, what you're trying to achieve through there. Well... When I was first setting it up and just putting a little plug here to Mark, he's the one that he was kind of like the, uh, it was kind of his brainchild, a lot of it. He set a lot of that up for me and then we got together and went through it and finished the process, but he's been very instrumental in helping me get that kind of stuff off the ground. But um, when I first started, I talked to Alec from Axnar to get his Mm -hmm. advice and he said, you know, I, I I thought I toyed around with the idea of maybe fifteen thousand dollars for the goal, maybe thirty thousand, but you know, he, he really convinced me that what is the bare bare minimum that you could right. do with, and considering what I've done so far, you know, I thought ten thousand is probably the bare minimum that I'd need to to finish the movie and get it done. But that being said, you know, if we make the stretch goals, it would be incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, I just posted the other day, and I'll post the completed picture of it, but my brother has been building a platform that actors can go up on and stand in front of where the warp core will be, like the one that Trip had in engineering. Mm-hmm. And that was almost just for the steel. That was almost $200 to build that thing. And you wouldn't think about that when you look at a platform like that. It basically just looks like some metal rods with, like, a piece of wood or something on it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that kind of stuff adds up quick. The chair, you know, for the metal to build that was, like, $200. And there's so many other things like that that I would like to build and do to get the kind of shots that I want that aren't necessarily required, that aren't part of that, quote-unquote, bare minimum. But Mm -hmm. if we can do them, it will make it that much better. You know, one of the things I really want to purchase software-wise is TerraGen 3 to really accommodate the alien landscape that we Mm -hmm. need. 
And, you know, doing that kind of thing custom in-house always looks so much better than going and buying a piece of stock footage. Oh, and, definitely. Yeah, which, by the way, is a very expensive endeavor in its own right. Right, that's not cheap either. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that could actually turn out to be more expensive in some mm -hmm. cases. And then, you know, of course, some of these things are things that I talked about, too, on the Kickstarter video, but computer power is a huge issue because... Um, you know some of these shots to render them the it's insane how long it takes and i was working with a scene earlier doing effects for it and man i just freaking clicking a button in the program would sometimes lock the computer up for 10 minutes mm -hmm. because you know i have these models that are so highly detailed and textures that are so highly detailed as well, which may not be a problem when you have one ship in your scene. But then when you start loading it down with, you know, five, ten or more ships, plus everything else that's going on in the scene, like weapons fire and such, that'll really, really, really bog down your computer. And mm -hmm. so the whole thing with the $10,000 goal is that what can I do to at least get this finished in a good way, you know? So with a $10,000 goal, I maybe can't upgrade the computing facilities the way I would like to, so I can get it out by the end of the year. It would, you know, it might take longer to, mm -hmm. because I'm just, right. the computer is just too slow. I can't purchase or build as much of the camera equipment I need. One of the things I'd really like to get is a motion control rig for the camera. And these have come down a lot in price over the years, but they're still very expensive for a good one. And for those who don't know, is it essentially allows you to set up a shot with your camera moving and it records, it moves the camera with a motor and records that exact motion and you can repeat it as many times as you want to. And this allows you to essentially film the same shot a bunch of different times with different elements. And this is the main way they do things in movies where you see people where the camera will be moving and a person will be disappearing and another person will be reappearing. You know, a good example is X-Men 2, the Nightcrawler scene in the beginning when he's jumping around the White House, disappearing and mm -hmm. reappearing. That's all motion control stuff where the camera mm -hmm. is on this exacting rig that moves the camera via computer. So, you know, stuff like that is stuff that isn't technically necessary to finish the production, but it's something that would make it even better. And that's primarily where our stretch goals are going. Also, another thing, this isn't an announcement, but it's something I would like to do is I would like to try and find a way to get um, Scott Bakula and maybe Connor Trenier involved. And, you know, cool. yeah, it would be. And it's not anything that would be a huge role, but it's the kind of thing that would really help add that authenticity and money talks, you know, and even not to say these people are greedy, but I don't expect them to fly out to Detroit and for a day and shoot these scenes right. on their own dime, you sure. know, and that's the kind of thing that on $10,000, maybe if I spend half of that, I could get Scott Bakula for a day, maybe, but then yeah. there goes half of my Kickstarter budget. So, you know, it's just stuff like that, that that isn't technically part of the bare minimum, but I would really like to do.
Mm-hmm. Sorry for the really long answer, by the way. No, no, that's great. Yeah, people need to know what all this goes towards because it's, um, I mean, people know that TV shows and films cost a huge amount of money right. to make. But of course, for the average person, a number like 10000 I mean, that that's a lot of money right there, well, even though and, it's nothing when it know, comes to production. Yeah, and the thing is that once you're doing a movie with a studio, like studio scale, a lot of your cost goes into things like catering, insurance, mm-hmm. and you know paying all these people that are involved. And that is one of the benefits of doing almost everything myself is that I'm not paying an entire production crew, and I can you know I can get a lot done for a lot less. The way Paul told it once is that he's been on. Um, He's been on productions where their catering budget was higher than what we've spent so far in this movie for one day. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's stuff like that. It's just really, it's really time-consuming, but it's about the only way to do it if you don't want to spend millions and millions of dollars. Well, what kind of rewards can people get uh, when they come and they pledge to the to the project? Well, one of the, in fact, I'm surprised that these haven't all sold by now, but one of the big ones is a custom Starfleet jumpsuit um, in, you know, your own dimensions, your own measurements. Mm-hmm. And there's, of course, a custom Admiral's jacket. And there's other stuff, too, you know, for obviously much less money. You can get the Blu-ray or the DVD. You can get... Um, the NX04 Discovery patch that I designed. And, you know, if we meet stretch goals, you can get... We'll be sending out Admiral-level rank insignia to all of our donors above $10. And, you know, there's also the Romulan patch that will be included for a higher stretch goal and a poster. And um, there's a soundtrack CD for one of the pledge levels, stuff like that. You know, it's, some of it's the basic stuff. Some of it's, you know, cool stuff like uniforms that we haven't seen other people do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, there, I think there's something there for everybody. There's also credits involved too on the film and on our website that you can partake of. Well, if you're an enterprise fan and you go to conventions and you want to wear an enterprise uniform, go pledge and and get this custom tailored Starfleet jumpsuit, handmade by Tommy. There's three of them, I believe, right? In, right, the, yeah. That you have for the backers. You will be exclusive at the convention. That's true. Um, yeah. They, I, I don't know. I think Anavos is maybe planning on doing some jumpsuits eventually, but I haven't mm-hmm. seen anything. I've only heard rumors about this for like the past year or two. Yeah, uh, but I I don't know. I mean, this is why I, I did them because I don't know of anybody else that actually makes them authentically. You know. Well, Mark, we've left you out of the discussion <laughs> here for that. a little while as we went over the the Kickstarter stuff and all. But of course, it's it's key to getting the project there. Do you have any any final comments about the project? Anything you want to tell Enterprise fans, Star Trek fans, and um, anything else about Horizon? I just think it's an amazing project. Um, I'm really honored and thrilled to be a part of it, truly. Um, it's going to be great. It's going to be, yeah, I just think I just think it's going to be, as we've said, something for everyone. Uh, and, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see the final product and to be part of it. Um, 
and I can't wait for people to see it. Really, I just I want to speed through this whole, you know, Kickstarter and the production and get it out there and and uh, be able to to kick back and and watch it and then to get people's reactions. I think it's going to be really interesting to see. So, yeah, I can't wait to see it either. So, so Tommy, last thing here, if people want to find out more, if they want to watch those videos that I've mentioned a few times during the discussion today, if they want to, um, you know, see some of the artwork, find out more about the premise and of course, support the Kickstarter and follow you guys in social media as well, where should they go? Well, we have our official website and that's StarTrekHorizon.com. And we have our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash ST Horizon. And those are about uh, two main places. We don't. I have a personal Twitter. I don't tweet very often. But those are about the uh, the two main places to keep up. The Facebook gets the. It usually gets the information first, and then it all gets, you know, backlogged onto the onto the website. Excellent, excellent. Well, I hope everyone will check it out. I'm really excited about it as an Enterprise fan. Any time that we can build upon that story, which was so sadly cut short thanks to the, you know, the realities of television. That's wonderful. And and I really appreciate you guys taking some time with me this week to come on the show and tell everyone about this. No problem. Glad to be here. It's very fun. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, there you have the story of Horizon and what I think is really an incredible story of creativity and what is now possible to create on a micro budget with today's technology. And a moment ago, we talked a bit about the Kickstarter, but one thing we did not mention is that this Sunday, May 4th, tomorrow, in fact, if you're listening to this episode right after it drops, Tommy will be releasing the first five minutes of the film for those who support the Kickstarter campaign. Now, I've seen it, and it's really intriguing, and it's beautifully done, and it really gets you excited to find out where the story is going. So so don't miss that. And again, as Tommy mentioned, you can find out more about Horizon on their website at StarTrekHorizon.com. And from there, you can get to the Kickstarter, the Facebook page, and more. Well, it's been great learning about Horizon today, and I really appreciate Tommy and Mark spending some time with me. But this is only one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on the network this week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Dr. McCoy with Larry Nemechek. But, you know, when everybody else had their Kirk shirt or their Spock shirt, like the first uniform I had my mom make me was a McCoy uniform, of course. Earl Grey. The 7-7 Challenge. Did you know that Tim Russ was one of the possible choices for Commander Joy Lee But did you know he was also in Star Trek Generations? But did you know he was also served with Captain Sulu on board the Excelsior? I did know that, in fact. The Orb. Our Man Bashir Commentary. <laughs> I love Avery. <laughs> Tell me what happens next. <laughs> And the look, the look up at an angle. He's not even looking at Bashir. He's looking up at the angle. Tell me what happens next. The ready room. Spectre of the gun. They're so quick to jump to conclusions. Like the guy gets shot in front of them and they're like, death is the only thing that's real on this planet. And I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) How do you know that? That could just be a total figment of your imagination as well. To the journey. 
favorite sun commentary. Yeah, Janeway is... Uh, you better get more coffee, sweetie. It's going to be a long day. Ensign Kim is going to put you through some hell. Warp 5. Alternate outcomes of the Zindi crisis. But inter- the Enterprise is heavily damaged. We're talking practically destroyed. Everything but a shell. Maybe the saucer section is the only thing that's still around. And 80% of the crew dies. Commentary, Trek stars. Rick Berman and Star Trek. He's kind of a moving target. So he found some dimensionality. He made it into a cube. Yeah. And so he was able to move things around in there. A board cube. Mm. <laughs> Continuing mission. Star Trek Equinox. John Savage actually came up with the premise for the story, but they needed somebody to flesh it out, to develop it. And so they sent me John's premise, and I just, well, it expanded into the script for the project that we're doing. Melodic Treks. The Borg in Music. In when when they released it as a Blu-ray, they combined them. They connected yeah. them, and there's the no feature. delay. There's they, they cut off that music, and then it's just like, oh, that didn't work. Literary treks. Rise of the Federation, Tower of Babel. Saval talks about this idea that you know people mutually consent to abide by these rules for their collective benefit. The idea that you know a- absolute unfettered freedom is just a ridiculous idea. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune. We're now on Spreaker as well and also on BlackBerry. And of course you can stream or you can get the RSS feed right there from our website. And going back to iTunes, if you're over there, be sure to visit our new home in the iTunes store where you'll find our dedicated artist page and section where we're now able to group and highlight our shows and episodes to help you find past content that you may not have heard. We're quickly approaching 1,000 episodes here on Trek FM, which is hard for me to believe, but we do have shows covering every single series as well as you know specialty topics such as music and science and, of course, news and general discussion as well. So we've got a lot of discussion and interviews waiting for you there. And our new page in iTunes will help you find those and uh, see what you've missed in the past. And the best way for you to get there, the quickest way, is just to go to iTunes.com slash TrekFM. And that'll open things right up there in your iTunes application. Also, if you enjoy the show, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a written review. We love to hear from you. And it does help other Star Trek fans find the show as they're looking through the iTunes store. Before I let you go, I'd also like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. Audible is the best source for audiobooks you'll find online. They have more than 150,000 titles for you to choose from right now, and they add hundreds of new titles every single week. New releases, classics, bestsellers. They've got a lot of Star Trek books, science, pretty much any genre you can think of. Lots of great stuff there for you, especially with great narrators as well. If you love podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks. It's a wonderful way to read, and it gives you a chance to read all those books that you've always wanted to read, but you never thought you'd have time for. And as a Trek FM listener, we do have a special offer for you. You can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. And the way you do that is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. Choose whatever book you like, and if at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that free book. But 
As I said, if you like podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks. And if you're already getting them from another source, give Audible a try. They have great prices, great selection. It's where I've been getting my books for 14 years now. No plans to stop anytime soon. And I really, really do appreciate their support of Continuing Mission and the network. So get your free trial, get your free audiobook at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Well, thanks for listening this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and join me again next time on this continuing mission and let's see what's out there.